you stroll around bookstores and look at magazine racks and these sort of things, which I, uh, I enjoy looking at part of bookstores and part of magazine racks, but uh, you do that enough, you, you get the idea that, that our world and, and, and countries, first world countries like New Zealand are money mad. Uh, I was looking at the, just I was curious how many, how many like money magazines, investing magazines that we have. And, and I found uh, at least five just on investing <laughs> in, a, in a little country like New Zealand. We're, we're money mad. Greed certainly must be one of the most reliable of, of human desires, isn't it? Greed. It's certainly reliable. For many people, it's often seen as respectable. It's one of those respectable sins that, that uh, we, uh, we, we don't often hear preached about, talk about, or confront one another about. Greed can easily appear as, as being thrifty, right? Oh, he's just thrifty. He's not greedy. He's thrifty. And then sometimes we can't even see greed. So what about you? What about you? Are you content with the soundness of your investments? And some of you may not be even, be even investing. But uh, the reality is when we look at the book of Haggai today, we're all investing in something. We're all investors one way or another. And so the book of Haggai is really going to challenge our confidence in our investments so I want us to, to, to get our heads around this idea of investing. What are we investing in? How sound are our investments? Well, let me give you just a little historical background to the book of, of Haggai and Haggai himself so that we can understand God's message for us. And in order to do that, to, to get this historical background, we, we really need to go back several books, if you will, and think about the days of the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And when, when Jerusalem was first invaded by the Babylonians, there were several invasions by the Babylonians. The first one was in 606 B.C. And at that time, uh, you can see here, the, the Babylonians, uh, they eventually uh, ransacked Jerusalem. They took off with, uh, in, uh, with, with parts of the temple and destroyed the temple. But in that first one, people were taken away as exiles, and it's, it's probably concluded that Daniel was a part of the first uh, a group of exiles. And then there was a second invasion that occurred in 597 B.C., and during that one, Ezekiel was taken. And so the city was then besieged again in 587, and then in 586, they, they just totally destroyed Jerusalem, wiped everything out, took anything of value, slaughtered thousands and thousands of people, and took many exiles again back to Babylon. And you can see there in that, that picture there that how the temple was destroyed. They took all the gold. Uh, most likely the Ark of the Covenant was taken at that time. And they took all the, uh, the lamps and you know, any, you know, the bronze and anything of any value to them, they took it back to Babylon. But there was also an, another great deportation of Jews uh, uh, to Babylon uh, during that time. And then the Jews stayed in Babylon for several decades until 538 B.C. that uh, the Babylonians themselves were overrun and uh, Babylon was destroyed by the, Medo, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then a couple years after that, King Cyrus, who's mentioned in the Bible, was, uh, he, he, uh, he decreed that the Jews could go back to their homeland. And so uh, after that decree, 
in 536 B.C., there was a large number of Jews, some say up to maybe 50,000 Jews, uh, uh, made that, uh, that 900 mile or about a 1,400 kilometer journey uh, back to Jerusalem. And I've given you a map here on the screen. Uh, you can see uh, they, they would generally follow the, uh, what, they, what was called the Fertile Crescent. But uh, many more Jews remained in Babylon. Not all of them, excuse me, not all of them went back to Jerusalem. Some stayed and uh, they, they settled there and, and they flourished. And so those who returned laid the foundation stone to, to rebuild the temple. Remember, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls. There was basically nothing left. But, and so they went back to rebuild and they started the process but they received some, uh, some opposition, particularly from the, the nearby Samaritans. And so under, under that opposition, uh, they, they basically gave up. Uh, they got things started, but they never finished. And I've given you a picture here where they're, they're one man's rendition. of their, They're trying to lay the foundation stones of the temple. But uh, there was a number of years that passed. They had gone back to Jerusalem started the process of rebuilding the temple, never finished it. The Persian Empire went through a couple of rulers during that time, and then in 522 B.C., uh, King Darius came to the throne, and it was during that period that King Darius, uh, when he was reigning over Persia, the Persian Empire, that uh, the prophet Haggai comes on the scene and he preaches. We have his sermons, if you will, his, his preaching sermons here for us in this book of Haggai. I've given you a picture of him as well. He's preaching before the people. You can see the, the temple's still in ruins in the background there. And he gives four little God-inspired sermons here in this little book. And it's just a short little book, isn't it? Just two little chapters. And after Haggai started preaching, uh, it's interesting that uh, the next book in the Bible is Zechariah. Zechariah, he also began preaching around that time period. But... We're not going to look at him today. Lord willing, we'll get to him next week. But what did Haggai preach about? What did he preach about? Well, uh, you got his, two, his four sermons here, but let me just shorten it for you, okay? In short, he called these returned exiles to prior, or, or prioritize the rebuilding of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And we'll see. He talks about that here in chapter 1. But and the, the people, praise God, they listened to him. They didn't uh, do what they did to some of the prophets and just ignore him and kill him. They actually listened to him. And you can see a picture of the temple here. And we know uh, that from, from the, the book of Ezra that the temple was eventually rebuilt. And it was uh, completed and it was dedicated about, by the way, it was about three years after Haggai preached. So it took him about three years to do so. Now as we look through this little book, I hope that uh, you will be moved, if you will, to, to be exhorted, encouraged to, to, to review your life, to review your investments in what you are investing in. Is it of, uh, where's your substance, if you will? Is it of any value, of any eternal value? Are your investments wise? Well, in this overview study of, of Haggai here, we're going to learn three things. Three things as we think about our investments. God tells us, uh, about our investments here in this little book. Number one, first, we learn that poor investments show themselves. Poor investments show themselves. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. 
These are the words of the living God. Here's what he says. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Let's stop there. Now in these verses here, we see God acts to convict the spiritual and the secular officials of Israel and as well as the nation at large. And what is he striving to convict them of? Their selfish priorities. They had selfish priorities. The Israelites had been living back in the land, uh, as far as we know, for more than 16 years at this point. They had spent several months rebuilding the temple at the beginning of those 16 years, but they had become indifferent to the rebuilding effort. And so the Lord used the prophet Haggai here to to rebuke them and to tell them that this was not right. Their priorities were wrong. They were being selfish. In many ways, their economy, as you can see here, was, was even worse than we've gone through during the recession. It's been called the Great Recession, right? Uh, basically, it was, their, their economy was in a wreck, if you read it according to what it says there. Just take it literally. We see that their, their harvest had been poor. Inflation uh, was, was out of control. Prices were high. Wages were low. They essentially had, they were, they were throwing money in a bucket, and the, and the money's going out the bottom of the bucket, essentially. Yet, it was in this particular context here that God inspired Haggai to preach. And he gives these messages. The, he's preaching these messages, and he's telling the people to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Why? Why did God say this? Well, he gives the reason. 
And the Lord said that it would please him. It would bring him glory. It would bring him honor. And he said, that's why I want you to do it. It would be an acceptable offering to him, he says. Why? Why would it be an acceptable offering? Why did God say that? Well, let's look at it from three standpoints. I've uh, drawn this from different commentators who've looked at it from different perspectives, different standpoints. Uh, The first standpoint we need to think about is the people's standpoint. Why? Why was this something acceptable? Why should they do this? Well, (coughs) excuse me, the, the, the rebuilt temple would be a clear and a public statement that they still wanted and valued God. It shows their value of God for them to do this. It would indicate that that God was a higher priority than anything else that was clamoring for their attention. Sadly, we can see here their houses were clamoring for their attention. They were putting themselves before God. The nation standpoint is good for us as well to think about. It would be a sign that the God of Israel had not gone out of business when the Babylonians ransacked and destroyed Jerusalem. Did God go out of business? (laughs) No. God's not confined to one city, is he? So it would be a public, uh, it, it would publicly vindicate God, really, before the entire world. He chose this little insignificant nation to declare his glory, and we see him doing it again. Number three, from God's standpoint, the temple was a a visible sign of the covenant that that bound him and his people together. It it represented his continuing favor to them and his continuing design to fulfill his promises. See, some question whether God's covenant with, with David, God's covenant with Abraham, God's Palestinian covenant, was that gone? No. Those things are forever, the Bible says. Therefore, the temple was a symbol, if you will. It was a symbol that God had not abandoned them. He was still living among them. So that's one reason, several reasons, if you will, why God wanted his temple rebuilt. So the returned exiles, when they had come back, they should have immediately rebuilt the temple. I think God makes that quite clear here. They should have made it their their first priority, even above their own houses. But sadly, they did not. So God used a drought. God used this preacher to draw their attention to their their sin of self-indulgence and their sin of God-neglect. What about you? What about you? It's very easy for us to sit back and say, oh, you know, that happened a long time ago. That has nothing to do with me today. Oh, it has everything to do with us today. (laughs) It has everything to do with us. We must ask the question, how are our investments? How are your investments? Are they sound? The reality is you are investing in something. You are. All this week you invested in something. All last week you invested in something. You have continually been placing your life on the line, so to speak. You've been giving it away hour after hour, week after week month after month and year after year you have been giving your life away you have been investing in something my question to you is what are you investing your life in what will your return be on this life investment 
What kind of a return are you going to get? There will be a return. When you invest, <laughs> uh, there will be a return. And so my friend, please understand that church buildings should not be equated with the Old Testament temple here. Now, uh, I've heard of preachers doing this sort of thing. They, they'll use this passage to, um, to exhort the people to give toward a building project. That's not what this is about. It's certainly not the primary application anyway. Church buildings today should not be equated with the Old Testament temple. Christ is the temple. <laughs> and, and we who have been incorporated into Christ, guess what? We, the Bible says we become the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And the Holy Spirit indwells you. If you're a believer, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are His temple. And so this is the temple that we want to see built, I hope. Not, not the Old Testament temple. Well, how? How? I mean, you say, I want this temple built? I mean, I don't get it. How, how can that be possible? Well, the true church is going to be built as God's truth is courageously preached. As God's truth is, is, is we evangelize, as we spread the truth, the true church is built, isn't it? It certainly is. And so as we give ourselves to listen to the truth of the word and and as we are convicted by it, the true church is built. And this is what our congregation should not neglect. This is why the word is central to everything that we do. This is why we even bother to, to have uh, you know, a Bible study in the morning. This is why we have a Bible study on Thursday nights. This is why we have ladies' Bible studies and men's Bible studies. Because the word is central. It is, it is, it is utmost, utmost importance. It is how the true church is built. So this is what our church should not neglect. I'll remind you the four core activities of the local church, Acts 2.42, the number one core activity of the local church is the apostles' doctrine. So to neglect the work of listening to God's word is undermining the church then, isn't it? To invest the substance of our lives to godless ends is a poor investment strategy. And if we do that, it's going to show itself one day. It will show itself. If you are investing in, in poor things that are not sound, it will show itself. That's what one, thing, one of the points that God is making here through the prophet Haggai. Number two, we learn that bad investment strategies must be corrected. Okay, Once you've, once you've learned, okay, that's a bad investment strategy, you're a fool if you continue down the same path, right? For example, if, tum if someone had told you uh, ahead of time several years ago what was going to happen to Bridgecore or Canterbury Finance, would you continue investing in Canterbury Finance and Bridgecore if you knew that they were going to fall apart? Of course not. Anybody in their right mind would say, <laughs> okay, they're going to go bankrupt. I'm getting out. I'm getting out. That's a poor investment strategy. Guess what? God tells you what poor investment strategies are, and he's telling you to get out correct things while you can well the people of israel did correct them praise god as we see uh starting in verse or 12 starting in verse 12 chapter 1 verse 12 then zerubbabel the son of shetiel and joshua the son of jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed notice that word obeyed the voice of the lord their god and the words of haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, 
and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the sixth year of King Darius. <laughs> now here's a picture of what the Bible calls repentance. This is a wonderful picture of repentance. Repentance is just a, it literally means a change of mind in regard to my sin. And so the people actually changed their selfish priorities here. They feared the Lord and they obeyed Him. That's, that's what it says. Now observe for a moment the several aspects of repentance here. Number one, there is an action of repentance. See, repentance is not just simply a change of mind. Because when your mind changes in regards to sin, your life is going to change. When God shows us our sin and repent of it, you don't continue on the same path. In verse 12 it says, the people obeyed the Lord. They didn't just stay selfish. They didn't continue to neglect God. They obeyed the Lord. But we also see the motivation of repentance here in verse 12. The motivation is that the people feared the Lord. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see that taking place here. Number three, there is a cause of repentance. And in verse 14, the cause of repentance is the Lord stirred up their spirits. It is the Lord who, who causes repentance, my friends. You, you cannot repent in and of yourself. God is the one that must cause you to repent. He is the one who grants repentance. And so if you're a non-Christian, and by the way, by non-Christian I just mean one who has never put 100% of your faith, your belief, and your trust in Christ alone to get you to heaven. If, you've never, if there's never come a time in your life where you, 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 you hate your sin, you forsake your sin, and you trust in Christ for salvation, then you're in the category of non-Christian. So if you're in that category, I, I, here's a question for you. How have you answered these questions so far concerning your investments? Investing your life. What are you investing in? How have you answered that question? If you have come to realize that you have sinned against God, then know that Christ came for people just like you. I've got good news for you. The Bible has good news for you. Christ came for sinners like me and you. Jesus himself said, I didn't come for, the, for those who don't need to be healed, those who are not sick. Jesus said, I came for those who are sick. And so you must recognize your sin. You must confess your sin. You must look to Christ. You must look to his perfect sacrifice on the cross. And you know that he died for your sin, repent of your sins, and follow Christ. That's how you can be saved. My friend, know this, that the time is now to repent. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. So if you're sitting here thinking, you know, um, you know that's, that's great, Pastor Scott, I agree with you, but um, I'll just get saved one day, one day before I die. You're not assured of tomorrow, my friend. 
You could die in your sleep. You could die driving home. You could choke on food at, at shared lunch, heaven forbid. But these sort of things could happen, okay? Do you understand? You are, you are assured of nothing except death <laughs> and eternity, all right? And so this whole world is heading toward destruction and judgment. And so my question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Do you know when that day will be? Of course you don't. You don't know when that day would be. So, so you, the Bible says that only fools sit around thinking, oh, yeah, I'll put it off and, and I'll have time sometime in the future. No, you're not assured of the future. So my friend, if God is working in your heart, today is the day of salvation. So make sure you're ready for the judgment day because it's coming. So may we be a people who have changed our bad investments, our bad investment strategies. May we be a people who have repented of our sins, who invite loving correction into our lives. And by the way, let, let me just state, okay, I want to be a good leader in this regard. Pastors are supposed to be leaders. I want, if you see sin in my life, I'm talking about sin, not something that annoys you. But if there's sin in my life, because I get people coming to me all the time who little little preferences that annoy them and, and they, they just let me have it sometimes. But anyway, I'm talking about sin, legitimate sin. I desire you to come to me. I want to be corrected. I am a sinner. I sin every day. So I'm asking you, help me. And I'm, hopefully we would all have that kind of an attitude. We'd recognize we're sinners and we'd encourage one another, hold one another accountable. And so when that happens, then we need to humble ourselves and humbly repent of our sin. Number three, we learn that sound investments prove themselves in their returns. Sound investments prove themselves in their returns. And the Bible shows us that God will grant His blessings to those who truly fear and obey Him. Now, listen closely, okay, because I, I don't believe in a health and a wealth prosperity gospel. That, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, Lord willing, I'll never preach that. Okay, because there's some people out there who think and preach, you know, just become a Christian, obey God, and your life's, all, you know, it's going to be perfect. You'll never have any problems the rest of your life. Really? <laughs> Did Jesus Christ have problems when he was here on earth? Was his life, uh, you know, perfect? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus said you can expect the same. But anyway, that's a whole other message. But we see that God's blessings comes in at least three ways in this passage here. It comes in at least three ways. Number one, God gives physical blessings. God gives physical blessings. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If, <coughs> excuse me, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. 
Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. Let's stop there. You notice when God started his physical blessing? The time of the laying of the foundation stone, right? So building a temple here, by the way, does not consecrate or sanctify someone. However, it, it, as it's hopefully clear here, defilement could be passed on by touching. That goes back to, uh, you know, way back into the Old Testament law. You, you, if you touched a dead body or something like that, you would be defiled. That's what it's going back to. And so Haggai warned the people that defilement was, was spreading amongst the nation. Defilement was spreading. And so chiefly, or, or I say clearly, the chief sin in this little book here was their lack of enthusiasm for rebuilding the temple and restoring the worship there. Essentially, it goes back to the issue of, is God in first place? Are you really worshiping God and Him alone? That's what it went back to. But still, as the people began to repent, God promised an end would come to the scarcity that they had known, which is why He, he asked that, that little question there, is there yet any seed left in the barn? So when the Lord asked that question, he basically means, uh, uh, you, you Israelites, I hope you've planted all that seed. I hope you're not expecting a drought. I hope you're, uh, you're not thinking another drought's coming, so I'll just leave some seed in the barn. No, don't do that. God's saying, I want all that seed planted because I'm going to bless you. The rains and the dews are coming. This represents physical blessing. So God was promising physical blessing. Blessing, but that is not the main blessing that Haggai is pointing to here. That's part of it, but number two, we see that God also gives spiritual blessings. He gives spiritual blessings. Well, what kind of blessings would this be referring to? Well, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. 
According to the word that I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give you peace, says the Lord of hosts. Let's stop there because thus ends this section referring to God giving spiritual blessings. But what blessings were mentioned here? Number one, God promised that His Spirit would remain among them. That's in verse 5. Now perhaps they had been worried that God had left them. <laughs> and I suppose there is certainly some reason to think that way. I mean, they, their, their country had been destroyed. The northern kingdom totally ceased to exist after the Assyrians attacked them. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. The city was, was nothing like what it used to be. But God assured them that he would continue to be with them. He had not abandoned them. He had not forsaken them. Number two, God also promised them his blessing of peace. In verse 9, you'll see it's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. He promised them shalom, peace. Now, what did this peace include? Well... As they turned from their own will to God's will, God blessed them with a peace that included things such as forgiveness of sins and literally peace with God. My friend, do you understand that if you're an unbeliever, if you are unsaved, you are an enemy of God. You are not his friend. You're not his child. You're a child of the devil. And so in order to be at peace with God, you must have the peace of God. Or I should say peace with God, to have the peace of God. And that only comes through salvation in Christ alone. Number three, God also promised that His glory would come to His people according to verse 7. Now when would this glory come? Now this is debated amongst commentators. When would His glory come? Well, the book of Hebrews, I think, helps to answer this question for us. Remember, Hebrews is all about showing that Christ is better than everything. Christ is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Christ is better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. Christ is better than everything. The law, you name it, he's better than everything. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, it says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, and then it quotes this passage, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So Hebrews 12 quotes Haggai, showing that Christ is the fulfillment. You say, I'm still not getting it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, when would his glory come? His glory, according to Haggai in Hebrews, is at Christ's second coming. Is that his second coming? Now, he, in his first coming, it's interesting, Christ walked into the temple, right? He declared himself, but his full glory was not revealed at that time, but there is a day when he will fully reveal himself as he really is. Number three, the third blessing is that God gives messianic blessings. And, and by messianic, i just taking the word Messiah, the anointed one, referring to Jesus. 
there's, there's a messianic blessing mentioned here in chapter 2. And chief among God's promised blessings through Haggai was the promise of a Messiah. The very person, the anointed one that, that, that a true Jew was, was looking forward to was the Messiah. By the way, it becomes clear in those final verses here of chapter 2. Uh, look at verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring. I, For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. You say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't see Messiah, I don't see Jesus, Lord, Christ, I, I don't see any of that mentioned there. Uh, well, why are you saying that God gives messianic blessings from that passage? Well, that would be a logical question, legitimate question. So let me, let me help you out here, okay, in case you, you're not understanding. In these last few verses of this book here, God is, is of course, addressing the governor of Judah, who is Zerubbabel. Once again, God is using an image of the final judgment and promises to bring all the world's empires to an end and to rule directly over his creation. We see that there. But God also makes a very strange promise here. Now, don't, don't overlook what's going on here because he makes this promise to take Zerubbabel and make him like his signet ring. Now, I don't have a signet ring. I just got a wedding ring, okay? But in case you don't know what a signet ring is, this, this, essentially this is a, a great act of honor. To receive a signet ring would, would be something like what kings used to do. Uh, they would give their signet ring to some very important minister to show the king's confidence in that man and to grant him great authority. And so that, that person would be representing the king every time he'd he would put stamp his signet ring in the wax. Many kings did that sort of thing. You can read about them in various places, even in the Bible. And so God is choosing Zerubbabel as his signet ring. He's granting him this honor, this, this place of authority, if you will. Now, to understand what God is saying, to fully understand, you, you really have to go to the New Testament and look at Matthew chapter 1, where you find that Zerubbabel is actually listed in that, what some people consider a very boring list of names in the genealogy. Now, who is that list of genealogy all about? Of course, it's about Jesus Christ. Would you, would you believe Matthew chapter 1 shows that Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah here, is in the line of Jesus Christ? I'll put it on the screen. Matthew 1, 12 says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetiel, and Shetiel the father of Zerubbabel. My friends, that's the same Zerubbabel mentioned here in Haggai. That is the same Zerubbabel whom God says, You will be my signet ring. What's the point? God promises, God's promises here are messianic. 
In other words, what I'm saying is that they're not just made to Zerubbabel, the man, but the man Zerubbabel is representing something far bigger and better than just a man. They were made to Zerubbabel, who is the heir of David's throne and ancestor to Jesus Christ. What about you? You say, well, I'm, I'm not an heir to Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm not a, uh, I'm not, I have nothing to do with David's throne, so what, you, what does this have to do with me? What blessings will you have? What blessings will you have? Will you be one of the repentant people? Will you trust in God's physical and spiritual blessings for your own life? Do you believe that God makes promises and keeps promises? My friend, if you don't, you need to read the Old Testament to find God makes thousands of promises and then read the New Testament and show how God keeps those promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. And so the greatest blessing indicated here comes not because of our obedience... But instead of our obedience, in, in spite of our lack of obedience, if you will, and that is the blessing of the Messiah. The greatest gift, the greatest blessing you and I could possibly receive is the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. The greatest benefit we gain is from no investment that you and I have made. And it's not sheer luck either. <laughs> this is an investment that, want, that God made for us, and He did it through His Son, Jesus Christ. Then when we become Christians, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, indwells every believer. And then as a result, we have been given peace with God through the work of Christ. And repenting Christians are given all of these blessings, despite the fact that you and I do not deserve them. So let me end with this question. <clears throat> Let's just get practical for a moment, okay? The Bible should be relevant. It is relevant. And we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So let's end with this question. I think it's on the screen. If an objective observer looked at your bank statements from the last year, what would he say your priorities are? If you were a Christian, would he say that your priorities are any different than those of someone else who is not a Christian? Oh, these questions hurt, I know. <laughs> Believe me, they hurt real bad. But they're very helpful. We need, we need reality checks to show are our investments sound? Are we laying up treasure in heaven? According to Matthew 6, Jesus said, by the way, Jesus is not against laying up treasure. Don't, don't think that. Some people think that way. According to Matthew 6, Jesus said, he cares about where you lay up the treasure. He's not against you laying up treasure. He just says, don't be a fool and lay up treasure on earth. Because thieves will steal it. Moth will eat it. And rust will decay it. And what doesn't happen to that? Judgment day will destroy it in the fire. That or you'll lay it up for your, your children or your grandchildren and then they'll waste it. What probably will happen. So my friends... Jesus cares about where we lay up treasure, and he says to lay up treasure in heaven where the bank of heaven will hold it securely and where great returns come to those who lay up treasure in heaven. So if, if you are one of those people laying up treasure in heaven, my friend, let me encourage you, 
that is a sound investment. And you will have great returns one day. And so if, if you invest your life and you're investing all of your life from, from your money to your minutes and you're investing it in Christ and His work and in the cause of Christ, that is a good investment. In fact, that is the best investment. And you will be rewarded one day. Nothing goes past God's notice. In fact, remember what Jesus said? Even giving a cup of cold water in His name brings its own reward. Even something as simple as that. So my friend, let me encourage you. Set your affection on things above not on the earth. Lay up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. That's a bad investment. But anything invested in the bank of heaven with God and for his cause and the cause of Christ is a good investment, and you will never, never ever be sorry. May God help us to have hearts and affections set on things above. Let's pray.